welcome to the How the Deal Was Done podcast. This show will feature fast-paced interviews with top sellers. We will hear the hard-earned stories, the challenges, and the learnings they picked up from their biggest and most memorable deals. We hope this podcast will give you a bit of inspiration and understanding for how big deals get done, deals that positively impact your customers, your company, and level up your career as a seller. Let's get started. Welcome to this special edition of How the Deal Was Done. I'm really excited to welcome a couple of guests to the show today. There's a saying that deals get started and deals get closed and sellers are not in the room. And so for the first time ever on How the Deal Was Done podcast, we're going to be welcoming both a buyer and a seller. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ewing Gillespie. Ewing, would, would be great to get your background. Andrew, thanks for having us, man. And, and I would add on top of what you just said, a buyer and a seller from the same transaction at the enterprise level. So a little bit about me, a lot of folks my age, I'm in my 40s. So, you know, from, from my era coming out of undergrad, it was really popular to go to business school or law school. And honestly, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I just didn't get my act together in time. And I missed the LSAT. And a good mentor encouraged me to take the GMAT and to get an MBA so we could flip houses together. So I had this entrepreneurial spirit from way, way, way back. I take the GMAT. I end up getting into Purdue. Purdue was ranked 21 at the time. And I thought, gosh, you know, I should go for that. It's a two-year program full-time. I was going to do a one-year accelerated at Ole Miss, my alma mater from undergrad. And I thought, you know, I'll go there. I studied marketing and HR. I was interested in those two fields had no real purpose or no real path or no real like thought about what I was going to do with those two fields. I just was interested in people and the messaging about businesses and you know how to drive demand. So leaving there, I got a job at Cummins. My first job was to take a list of every single piece of software bought at the enterprise level and find out what the price was online. That's a 2007 assignment to a newly minted MBA. Didn't have it in the system. There wasn't all this transparency like we have today. It's, hey, go out on the internet and see if we can get a better deal than what we're spending right now. And maybe if there's a couple alternatives that are obvious, we should look at that. This was like renewal process, right? So that's assignment number one. I go through Six Sigma and out the other side, project management, uh, rose up through the HR ranks, ended up going to a software vendor that was that I was the second customer of. So I was the second customer of this particular software vendor in San Francisco. They moved me out to San Francisco. That's how I got into tech. Um, you know, and what I would say is in, in that two years of, of procurement experience, I actually started in software procurement. In those two years, I got about 10 years worth of an AE seller's deal experience. But what I actually got was the inside baseball that happens when the seller is not there. And so that's part of what we're going to talk about today. So fast forward to IBM. They called me out of the blue. A friend of mine I worked with at another startup got hired there and and he said, I think this, I think there's a job here that's got your name all over. Watson was used, the AI modules were used to match job descriptions to resumes for the first time in business after Amazon flopped with their internal product and biased against women, famously written about all over Reuters and everywhere else. And so big challenge, zero customers. How do we get to something? And we're going to talk about a play called the Lunch and Learn play. The Lunch and Learn play is what led me to Tito. And once we get into the deal itself, I took a play from my startup background, brought it back to life at IBM, 
and Tito was the gas on the fire to make that really, really hum. And so that's uh, that's how we get to IBM. Uh, in my career, I now do uh, message market fit for early stage founders and companies, folks that usually don't have a salesperson yet, or maybe have an AE only and no leader, no rev ops and that kind of stuff. So Tito and I taught a workshop recently as part of a big consulting group's accelerator. I love the way he articulates things. Hopefully he'll take us through a little bit of the psychology and, and some of his frameworks as he articulates his side of this story, being the seller, selling to IBM. Cool, yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm Tito Bort, I'm the CEO at a company called Alti Sales. We're dedicated to go-to-market. Uh, so we see ourselves as a go-to-market accelerator. Today, we're going to talk about one of the big deals that we work with IBM, specifically in the sales development outsourcing space. Uh, but nowadays, we do a lot of consulting too. Um, we have a software platform called AltiSales.io. Uh, it's a data-driven way to understand how to improve your message market fit. And then we do a lot of investing as well. So uh, close to $3 million invested in early stage companies. But what's beautiful about what I do is I am able to go and build something for a company. And usually the way I build it is a way that is within our infrastructure. So I can very easily unplug it and plug it into the next company. So the amount of intellectual property or processes that we've already built, if somebody signs up with us today, we're definitely better than we were six months ago and better than we were a year ago and better than we were two years ago. We just keep getting better. It's fascinating, and, and there's a big vision for where we're going. And yeah, I've always had a passion for kind of like sales and marketing, and more specifically, what makes people tick. So if you've, read, if you've read any of the books, like The Tipping Point or Why We Buy or Predictably Irrational, it's all in the um, realm of uh, behavioral economics, decision neuroscience. That was my background in college. And I'd say my, my first uh, sales gig was to be a tour guide at Duke University, where I perfected the flow of the hour and a half interaction with guests from how I introduced myself to how I closed the session. It was all almost scripted. I broke the record for most applicants mentioning a single tour guide's name as part of the reason they wanted to uh, go to Duke University. So that's a lot of fun in kind of like crafting that sales process. And I'll go a little bit more in depth once, we, uh, once we're talking about the IBM deal. But uh, yeah, excited to be here. That's great. Let's, uh, let's shift the focus now to the, uh, the deal itself. Ewing, could you set up the background before the vendors were involved? Why don't you set it up for us? Sure. So I come in to be what's kind of, you might think of as a product marketer. We called it like a market creator. So these three Watson products, one for the career website, one for the internal employee to get a new job. So you go to Watson, you say, hey, I want, a, I want a new job at my company. What, what am I fit for? Um, and then for the recruiter, uh, Watson recruitment to say, okay, we have 400 people apply to this job. Who's the four we should interview tomorrow, right? How do I just get from 400 to four and not read every single resume? Cause that's going to take me a whole week and you get the idea unless I just read them in three seconds, like most people do. Um, so every one of those products had a market creator. I was in one of those roles. We all started at zero deals, zero revenue, zero anything. This is during launch. And it became very apparent to me that pipeline was the reason, you know, our products were pretty good. 
Um, we got a couple of early adopters from existing clients, uh, adjacent, you know, product families. IBM's a big place. We have, they have a lot of customers. It's a nice thing to be able to launch that way. Then it became pretty clear that pipeline was really hard to develop. And when you don't have that muscle, when you're heavy inbound and you're a big company like IBM, you have a very strong brand, the most recognized brand in the world. We were passed by Accenture during the time I was there. So number one, number two, Accenture, IBM, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult um, to develop that skill from scratch. So there was an existing vendor. In fact, there were four existing vendors for events. So I said, look, let's do some lunch and learns. I've used lunch and learns in the past. Put, put 20 buyers in a Morton Steakhouse for lunch. No alcohol. The bill's low. They, they can come during lunch because you're not competing with soccer and ballet and flag football and all the stuff their kids are doing at night and they're, you know, their, their partners, you know, their relationship and everything that, that that's, that's a lot to compete with for dinner. A lot of people like dinners. Dinners are great, but dinner's a big ask. Lunch is not a big ask, right? So I like lunches. And, and, you know, at a previous startup, we, we actually built 70% of our pipeline and 38% of close one from a lunch and learn play after rolling it out for a year all across the U S. So it can be really powerful when you do it right. But I had no phone numbers, like we, we were, we were discover org only, uh, single sourced. And in, in working with Tito, one of the things I learned is when you're single sourced on data, you're going to cover about 18 to 28% of your target market. If you're picking the accounts at random based on what you, what your ICP is, one data provider is going to get you 18, 28%. Why? Because they might have contacts at a certain company, but they might not have the actual buyer persona that you need to reach, right? Or even one of the adjacent apart, uh, departments. So to set the stage, pipeline's not going well. I'm like, let's do a lunch and learn play. And, and I get told that we have existing vendors. So I set the vendors up and I let them fail. Knew, knowing they would fail, I could tell on the very first call their approach was going to fail. And they, we had to cancel the lunches because we only had like one or two attendees. Okay, so this is April, May timeframe. Now we're getting into, into July. I, the problem's not getting better. Our outbound motion is completely dead. Um, we're in the middle of rolling out sales loft at IBM. Everybody in my network is telling me outreach. Everybody. I don't have a single person in my network that says, yes, you want to go sales loft. Not one. Couldn't find one. Looked hard. Uh, if they worked for sales loft, they said sales loft. If they didn't work for sales loft, they all said outreach, right? So now I have that to deal with. We don't have an internal BDR team. We have a shared service BDR allocation type of a model. So you get a couple of you know, recent college grads that basically have never done the job, have gone through six months of training, training on what, you know, not your division, right? So training on some basic things about life and, you know, how to be an adult. Then they come over to your division, stone cold, and they're supposed to build pipeline. And they're on these, you know, six to 12 month assignments. They rotate back out, go to another division. Works for some divisions, really hard when you're going from zero logos. Okay. So that's the internal team. And uh, I just... I just took it upon myself and wrote a rogue RFP, right? I wrote an RFP, not approved. I was not a decision maker. I didn't have, and in the Bant world, you would have, you would have not wanted to do business with me, right? Um, so I wrote a rogue RFP and it basically was a scoring mechanism. And it said, uh, if you put a C-level at a lunch, that's five points. If you put a VP at a lunch, that's four points. If you put a director at a lunch, that's three a manager is minus uh, a manager is minus two, 
So if a manager shows up, if you if your team somehow lets a manager show up and ruin this lunch, it's minus two. Um, is, is is how much we don't want that level of person at the lunch. I've been doing this for a long time. You put that person with executives, they ruin the whole lunch. Um, they feel like they have to talk and, and show off their skills. It's 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 really really bad mixture. Can be. Um, anyway, so that was the scorecard. Really simple, and <clears throat> I had five thousand dollars to give to two vendors to run head to head. That's it. And I wanted to run a month trial head to head so that they didn't have to do it for free. And we got, uh, I asked all the vendors to send a video back, um, five minute video. I think you should share Tito's five minute video or have your guy maybe edit it down to the punchy part where he shows the data. Cause he shows a real client's data, not fictitious, not what a dashboard could be. And the woman on there, Terry, her name is Terry with an I, she ended up working on our account and she set over 200 meetings in less than a year working on our account. And 108 of those meetings she set was on a stone cold phone call. Right. And I also learned from Tito that none of the emails that went out that Terry sent, Terry ever wrote or ever even touched the power of outreach. Right. So um, I'm getting into a little bit of his his uh, his sizzle. So this the stage was we were really struggling with pipeline in this division for this new product launch. I want to run a lunch and learn playbook. I wanted the vendors to compete and we'll let the scores settle themselves. The quality of the person that shows up, we give you the target list. You don't get to pick because we can only do business with people over 10,000 employees. That's our TAM. That's our addressable market. Companies smaller than that don't have enough volume for Watson to do its job. Watson needs data, right? AI needs data. You got to have a big company. So um, that's set in the stage. Tito tells me to basically F off. Um, he doesn't work for free and um, good luck. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, 5,000 was considered free. Uh, another vendor gave me a similar, uh, feedback. So I started calling the vendors back one at a time and saying, Hey, you know, um, I'm shutting this thing down. I, I'm not going to be able to get this off the ground. Right. I don't have like real funding. I have like a couple of nickels over here. And one vendor says, you know what, forget it. I'll, I'll do a free trial. So then I call Tito and I let him know, Hey, um, not moving forward with Alti sales. He says, why not? I said, well, I've got someone that agreed to do a free trial. And he goes, well, I mean, I might as well show you I can beat them. I might as well, I might as well make this competitive. He's like, you know, the IBM logo is worth having. He's like, I'm not going to let somebody take this business with no competition. So then he changes his mind. Now he wants to compete. So now I got two vendors willing to compete for free. That's how we get to even the starting line. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that, that's a great background. I, I want to hear from Tito about, you know, how he approached this, this opportunity. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give my uh, my perspective and what I was seeing on my end. So I think um, Ewing had put a post on LinkedIn about like who are the best sales development outsourcing companies, and um, a few people tagged me on it, uh, and I saw a lot of other companies tagged as well. I was like, yeah, that's cool. So uh, we connect with Ewing, and uh, I tried to understand what he was trying to do, and I I kind of like knew or trusted that we were the best. So he was at IBM. I, I thought like that'd be a cool logo to win. Uh, we talked briefly and he tells me he has uh, $2,500 for a month worth of work. Um, and like my initial reaction is you're going to fail because I know how this business works. And the only way to do this right is you can't hire just one SDR and ask him to do everything. And uh, 
if they're not dedicated to your campaign and they don't understand it deeply and they don't know how to troubleshoot or learn the objections and do it carefully, uh, they're just going to be using, you know, very generic language. And if they use generic language, they sound like everybody else. And if you call the CHRO of Coca-Cola and you sound like everybody else and you say you're at IBM, they hate you and you suck. So I told him, this isn't going to work. Like, you you don't have enough money. and Like, you're going to try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. Um, like everything else, uh, if, if, you don't, if you don't invest enough, like, it's like, why do, why does an IBM CTO have so much experience just to hire a kid out of college or make him the CTO, right? Like, you would never do that, though they think that, you know, many companies think that on the SDR rollout works. So I declined to work with him two or three or four times over and over and over again because I said, my, you know, my fees are around $30,000 a month, not higher, and you have 2500 like, we're not even in the same ballpark. And uh, what Ewing explains to me is he says, here's what's happening. Like, I have identified the challenge we have. I don't have the authority to write any checks. I was able to convince my boss to give me a little bit of budget to run an experiment. But if we can demonstrate that this is valuable, uh, I am talking to X, Y, and Z up the chain of command, and they're aware of this thing that I'm running. And it will depend on uh, how well we do. Um, so then I start getting into the weeds of like what, what sort of thing they're trying to do, the lunch and learns and how they're going to run it and who's going to be present and whatever else. And for me, really, you know, when we're charging thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a month, the difference between $2,500 and zero is negligible. Like it just doesn't matter. So me going through the whole procurement process and getting onboarded to charge $2,500 it's just not worth my time. And we're a small company with 20 people. So it's not like I have a, a team of finance and HR people can go build this up. So I uh, I tell Ewing, sure, like, let's talk. I'll, I'll send the five-minute video. And, and at that moment, I knew. I was like, I just got to demonstrate that I'm different. So when people get asked for a five-minute video, I know what everybody's going to send. They're going to send a me, me, me. Here's what we do. Just show my face. Look professional. They're going to talk to the camera. And I knew that was just going to feel completely generic and boring and no differentiators. And like anything you can say, everybody else can say, yeah, we're the best. Like we have a lot of success. And like we work with big companies like X, Y, and Z. Like everybody was going to say the same thing. So what I had to propose is obviously they would know that I could say the same things. But when you have five minutes, you just got to get into the weeds and show some differentiators. Like I literally prepared my screen with like four different tabs and I showed very specific metrics and I showed them how to, how we control the call calling aspects of a campaign and how we structure it and how our emails have certain variables and how they tie together and what it's like to have a, a an experience as a prospect. I also knew that that was my, my differentiator, right? Like most of these companies are spraying and praying just generic messaging. So me showing that I have different messaging, better better controlled, and, uh, you know, everything with, like, metrics and management, it makes it a lot more expensive, but it makes it a lot more powerful. So that was a five-minute video I sent. And uh, I sent it into the dark. I sent it to Ewing, and I was like, I'll just wait. Uh, I, can't, I can't work a month. Uh, my cost to work for you for a month is 10K, 12, 15, 20K, who knows how much. Onboarding, it's a, that's another 10, 15, 20K. But take the video and let me know if... Uh, if you get another $100,000 from, from IBM, uh, we can talk. I just shoot it out and 
almost marked the opportunity uh, close lost uh, right, right as I said the video. Wow, Tito, that, that's really interesting. And you, you did the video, but it d- doesn't sound like you were pursuing this logo, like a lot of companies pursue enterprise logos. So that, that's fascinating. I want to uh, go over to Ewing and uh, Ewing in enterprise sales. So much of it is about risk, risk management, risk mitigation. And I want to understand from your perspective, it's IBM, it's Watson. These are some huge brands. There's a lot of risk in play for yourself, um, for your boss, for the entire division. And uh, how were you equating that? And uh, how was that informing your actions? Yeah, so... You know, the reason I ran, I ran it like a competition is I didn't know any of these vendors. I had no previous relationship. The risk was really high. No matter who I pick, I lose all the time. They all just think, you know, well, hey, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to do my best. And if, you know, if we don't get the result, hey, sorry, we tried. Your product market fits no good or, you know, the, the whatever. Uh, territory wasn't ready, to, laggards of the market. Who knows? There's a thousand reasons why you can fail. But for me, I can't. I can't go try another firm back in time, right? So it's a really big decision. Um, it's a huge career thing for me too. So if if this works, then everybody's going to know because right now pipeline's not being created repeatedly in any meaningful way. Now coming from a startup, right? I was an AE at a at two startups before I went to IBM, so I understood Tito's point of view, right? Having been in that chair. I did not put them through a procurement process. I did not put them through data protection. I did not put them through any of that. Literally, all they had to do was take an account list and do what they do and show off their skills. And I actually I actually went and found the moment. So I thought I'd just share it uh, real quick as we're getting into this. But I went and found the moment that um, I remember vividly when Tito's going, this is Tito's actual video that he sent. It was 20% replies out of... 1200 mailed. Okay. Now, yes, some are neutral, some are, but 10% positive. 20% replies at that scale. Okay. Bounce rate, unsubscribe, unsubscribes, almost none. Okay. So he's good at data. Excuse me. He's good at data on the bounce. He's not so pushy. You can, you can learn a lot from one chart. This is, this is 1,200 data points, okay? And it's real. And so I know this is more emails than our entire team sent the last month. Now he's showing two months worth of data for one SDR. That's a, that's a lot, okay? So this one chart from Outreach told me that we're at least going to get coverage. We have a chance. These are real names over here. There's Terry, and I got it wrong. Terry with a Y. There's two different Terrys. This Terry, uh, Ter- I think she was from Canada. She had a great voice on the phone. But I wanted to share that 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 chart. And Tito's right. Um, every other video was like, "I'm the founder of blah 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 firm, and we 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 we're gonna listen to you. We're gonna uh, you know really c- consult you on the market, whatever that means, um, and we're gonna show up and be professional and you know." whatever that means. And all of these things that you don't have any meaning, that chart has meaning. That's real work. That's real validation of skill and of approach and of what's going to happen. So I had a lot of confidence there. The fact that I got to test him head to head gave me even more confidence. So you're talking about risk. I'm talking about risk reduction. Here's how we reduced it. So gave Tito three cities, gave the other firm three cities. Here's your cities. Here's your accounts. Invite as many 
uh, VPs and directors as you can. If you get a C-level, lucky you. Don't expect it. They don't usually come to lunches. And, you know, 5-4-3 minus 2 scoring, okay? So Tito put 27 people in lunches with only three and a half weeks to do it. So three and a half weeks from the lunch date in Chicago and Houston and Raleigh, I think it was, 27 people walked through the door. The average score for them was 4.1, which means he had slightly more C-levels than directors, where the average, if you're a 4.0 in that, in that methodology, they're all, they're all VPs. Now, we're not getting any VPs attention, okay? And now we have 27 with an average score of 4.1 on a three and a half week heads up. Now, Alonjo is an easy invite, but I wasn't testing whether he could evangelize our product better than us. I was testing whether he could execute in a tight timeline and get a lot of quality, good enough volume out to fill up a lunch, which I knew was possible. The other firm got 17, so 27 to 17, and their quality was much lower, 3.6. So while they did get a few VPs, they were almost... For every VP, there was a director, and they even had a manager show up. Oh, oh, a talkative, talkative person. And, you know, after working with Tito for a year, uh, I, I came to learn part of his methodology is the, the night before email, the morning of follow-up call. There's a lot happening around the edges of the invite. This firm just put it on the calendar, and it got delegated, and nobody knew. Next thing you know, you got a chatty manager ruining a lunch alarm with a bunch of executives that wish... They weren't in the room with this person. So it actually happened. It actually played out that way. But um, so that's how I reduced risk for myself was I put this I put this vendor on the hot seat and they delivered and actually over delivered what I expected in a really with no training, no sales enablement, no like this is what we do. It's like you don't need that to invite someone to a lunch. You don't need to be able to explain the product. You don't need to be a product expert. In fact, if you are, you might hurt yourself in that exercise. So um, that's the way I reduce my risk. The way I reduce risk for Tito is not put him through a procurement ringer before I, he gets a chance to show off what he can do. Yeah, no, that's that, that's really interesting, Ewing. So, okay, we, we had the pilot and Ewing, you set up a scoreboard so there everyone is able to see up the ladder. 27 to 17, sounds like a football game. What happened after that, Ewing? Where did things go? And like, was it was it all done? And before that, Tito is uh, Tito's going to jump in. So we're going to go to Tito and then Ewing. I, I think it's important to clarify also my perspective because I sent that video and, and I'm not expecting much, right? And um, Ewing comes back and what he told me, and this might, might not be true, is he says, well, when I started looking at this, I had like, I don't know, 40 vendors that, had, um, that I talked to that wanted to chat. Then I don't know how many sent the video, like maybe 15 or 20 or whatever else. And then he came back and after he received the video, a couple of days later, he said, I've sent this video to other people at IBM and you're in the top three. And now we're going to choose. Or you're in the top five. And now we're going to choose. And for that, we want to do a trial. And we have the $2,500 for the trial. So what I immediately realized is, okay, well, this is getting attention. And then they told me that the trial was a lunch and learn. So my question, just to make sure that I'm not single-threaded and I'm uh, too far down the totem pole because Ewing had clearly told me I, I cannot get budget for this. It is so, going to be someone else. I said, who's going to show up at the lunch and learns? And where are these happening? He said, well, we're going to talk to C-level executives and VPs at you know the biggest companies. So I knew that a company like IBM 
wasn't going to take the risk of running an initiative to have the CHRO at Coca-Cola show up to a lunch and learn and have some like low-level dumb sales guy who just started with IBM six weeks ago go pitch. Like I knew this was going to get attention. So despite me not getting the money, I was like, well, if I do this well, at least I'm in the eyes of other people. And even though there's no budget, when I think about a company, I think there's two key moments of truth for a buyer to buy. The first moment is when they, when uh, the stakeholders realize that this is a problem and they decide that they, it is a problem that's so big they want to solve it. Now, Ewing at IBM was that person. He had realized it was a problem. He knew he wanted to solve it, but there was not yet, in my perspective at the beginning, uh, 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 the decision to solve the problem or to allocate funds yet. The second part of a, a buyer that's really important in the psychological journey is when they say, if we ever want to solve this problem, this is the vendor we, will, we are going to pick. So I wanted to make sure that both of those moments had happened and there was a strong agreement inside IBM. Iwi was very aware of the early. I knew that if I did the lunch and learns, this would get to the executives that would eventually be able to say, well, we're, we're going to allocate budget to it. And the final piece to just close was I had to make sure that it was me. Now, what that meant for me is I had to do whatever everybody else was doing and just do it better. That's why I did the video and I did the video better than everybody else. And now I get to hear from Ewing that somebody decided to do a free trial. And like in my mind, IBM has so much money, you know, hundreds of billions of revenue that they should have paid. But I knew from my sales process and psychological journey perspective, I couldn't let somebody else show that they're better than me. I just lose the deal for laziness. So that's why I decided to do the free trial. That's why I got the 27 people with an average 4.1 and whatever else. And then from that moment, again, just forget about it, you know, demonstrate it, lean back and wait until some executive at IBM says, this is worth throwing money at. And who's the best bang for our buck? And I knew that was us. So then it was a patience game. Very cool. This podcast is sponsored by OrgChart Hub, helping HubSpot customers get the big deals done since 2018. You can find more about them in the show notes or visit orgcharthub.com slash podcast. Ewing, so can you take us after the the twenty seven seventeen scoreboard and where things went? Yeah, so then we had the lunches, and after that, nothing happened. It's like, okay, so we proved some capability. The lunches took place in August and September. Okay, now early September, late August. Then, and I heard nothing, and I thought, wow, we killed it. We killed it. Like we talked to more people in the last couple of weeks than we talked to the rest of the year at the right level of the organization to, to champion this, right? To get behind it, to tell us if we're working on the right stuff. The lunches went well. The, the, the survey feedback from the lunches was off the charts. We set a whole bunch of meetings. And then our quarterly results come back for Q3. And finance does their thing, right? And the books get closed. Then all of a sudden, on October 14, 15, somewhere in that range, now we're 15 days after the close, 15, 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, all of a sudden I get a note from CRO, hey, 
Bob says, GM, he wants to light up that lunch thing. That's it. The buying process was, Bob wants to light up that lunch thing. Turn it on. Tell me what it costs. So the buying process for Tito, when the authority was involved, was about 10 days. Now, it took a lot of work to get to that to create awareness. I was operating completely rogue, completely just nothing. There's nothing approved about this, but I knew that if we could demonstrate capability, that money would follow. Because I saw what we were spending money on in, you know, to compete with this, going to trade shows. Like, you know, for IBM to show up at a trade show is, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar exercise, right? Depending on the trade show and how many people and how big is the booth and all that kind of stuff. So I was confident if we could demonstrate capability, the money would flow. And just like that, quarter the quarter wasn't what exactly what we wanted it to be. And you know what they remembered? They remembered there was these lunches full of executives that just happened. And it was burning in their mind because there was nothing else in their mind that was a bunch of executives in any one pocket of go to market that was happening repeatedly. So that's all it took. That's all it took. One month, three lunches, and then we have a 10-day buying cycle after that. Tito, what was it like for you? And you just, you know, you just covered the part that I was saying that I knew was missing, right? I knew that the moment that was missing was there was pain in the organization and I just needed somebody that had pain and power to say this is worth solving. And usually organizations, when they buy, buying is non-linear, right? Like, again, there's two key moments, understanding or, well, maybe a couple of key moments, but there's the, the moment the moment people realize they have pain and there's the moment that they decide that this is this pain is worth solving and it's worth throwing money into. And then there's the choosing the vendor. And I knew that in choosing the vendor, you could call the shots because you were in the weeds. Somebody, sometimes this gets delegated down and we had gone so in-depth and we had so much data and we had demonstrated capabilities that you can run the demonstrating of value and demonstrating who's the right person with somebody who doesn't have budgetary authority as long as they're a trusted advisor to the top. So I had checked that box. I had checked the box that they had pain and this wasn't like, you know, just E-wings, uh, you know, being stubborn, trying to run this uh, for, for the cheapest or like doing some crazy stuff. And then when that moment happens and the books close and the, 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 the executive decides we got to solve this problem, it was then easy. And then they came to us uh, also saying like, okay, so what's, what's the price? And I had already planted the seed with Ewing back in the day. And I said, we charge, you know, $30,000 per team uh, per month. And uh, the next question is how many you have. And then there was a little bit of debate because this is now November or so where they're like, okay, like how many teams do you think we need? I said, how many meetings do you want? We, each team gets about 100 meetings a year. I said, holy cow, we want like, I don't know, 200, 400? Like, how many can you get? I said, our system is perfectly scalable because we're not spraying and praying. So we're actually giving each SDR only about 100 accounts a month. So if you have, you know, 2,000 accounts, I can, I can run four teams, no problem. Uh, and he at one moment said two teams, then he said four teams, and he said two teams. Eventually, he settled on four teams. <clears throat> and that engagement ended up being, you know, you can do the math, but like four teams at $30,000 a month. Like we're looking at about close to a million and a half dollars. Uh, so it ended up working out on 
on my end, but it, the, the, there's there's those key moments that as a seller you got to be aware of, and, and as a buyer you experience them. And so, some people don't necessarily can like think about it as much. But once you're bought, it's a lot of, it's a lot easier to understand how to sell. Yeah, and, and I would say, uh, yeah, exactly. And I would say that there's a strong um, there's there's this belief, this this myth, and it comes from people that have been in sales their whole career. It comes from the insecurity of being of growing up selling in the 90s and hearing from people older than you, you must get to the VP or the chief, whatever. You have to. That's just how sales works. It's nobody up the chain, um, nobody at VP or higher ever met Tito. Not once. They, in fact, I'm not even sure if they know. I'm not even sure if half of them even know the name AltiSales is AltiSales. Okay. And, and the thing is, is they only get involved when the deal value is more than two, three X their total compensation. And it's a good, a, a good way to think of it. If you're a seller out there listening to this episode is if you sell a hundred K solution, you're going to be dealing with a 150 K person. All right. And that's a senior manager, a direct, you know, entry level director at, you know, 10,000 employees and up kind of think of that as a rough a U.S. data point on on comp. If you're selling a half a million dollar solution, you're probably going to deal with that person's boss maybe maybe once, and maybe not. Right? You might still stay at that same level. You need to be you need to be selling a million dollar annual uh, uh, ticket item to really even warrant being engaged with that level of person. And if you try to disrupt that, you take a huge risk. Because what you're saying is, is this person that they pay $300,000, the VP pays this person $300,000 to tell them what to do. And you're saying that your investment sucks. Like, I don't, I, I can't deal with them. They're not strategic enough. They don't have enough power. They, they, this, they, that. And, and, and in fact, if you respect the process and enable that person to sell for you, you're way better off. Right. Another thing about like enablement and slides, like I never, I think I never used any of Tito's slides. So he made a bunch of slides for IBM. Everybody makes slides for every deal and never use any of them. Nobody ever saw them, but they did see the video. The video spoke, the video shouted value. The slides say the same as everybody else's slides. We run a team, we structure it like this. We're founded here, we're located here. We do great work. We have some customers that are happy, so what? Don't use those, can't use those. Those slides don't have any meaning. And so, but he enabled me to sell on his behalf and all the meetings that mattered where all the decisions were made, the vendors never invited. And, and so, you know, to fast forward to the end of my sort of IBM career, if you will, I brought in nine new vendors, nine. I was told I'd never get one. It is very hard. There's a, there's a finance meeting that happens outside of your chain of command. So your chain of command has to bless it. Your chain of command has to get you invited to the finance meeting. You have to, you have to get out of the finance meeting yourself. And if you can't, if you can't pass that gauntlet, that checkpoint, then your GM can't save you. They can't override finance. And so when I brought Tito into another division, we had to start all the way over, all the way over. Even after having a case study in software and consulting, we had to start all the way over. And, you know, if you're selling to GE and Amazon and some of these big companies that have rolled up companies underneath them and have multiple divisions, you shouldn't, you shouldn't expect that just getting one deal means you can have a deal anywhere you want. Sometimes you have to start over in this case. And I'll just fast forward to the end. Um, 
we had the same. So the CRO and myself both went over to consulting. So we were a two man team on this and we, he was the exec that really got it and helped me get into the right doors to sell on Tito's behalf. Um, and he trusted me to, you know, to craft the solution that was actually going to work and deliver some results. So we go over to consulting and everyone's all in and we're just going to turn Tito back on. And I go to finance and the question I got from finance was, do we really need to pay someone to get a meeting? We're IBM. Doesn't everyone just want to meet with us? And I went and looked this person up on LinkedIn. And first of all, they're a finance person making a judgment call about the U.S. business located in London. They've been at the company for 17 years, only ever worked in finance their whole career. That's, that's your decision maker. And many companies now, Tito never even knew this. He never didn't even know this meeting even happened. So I'm in there. I'm looking at this guy on LinkedIn. I'm thinking, wow, this is this is hopeless. You know, so I got told no, got told no again. Then quarter resets. So if you're out there and you're selling an enterprise, a lot of things change when a quarter's books are closed. When a quarter's books are closed for a publicly traded company, that's when things can change. So if you're nurturing accounts, you want to follow up in late October. You want to follow up in late April. You want to follow up in late July. You want to follow up in late January. That's when you want to check back in, you know, and try to, you know, what you don't want to do is bother them in the last three weeks leading up to the quarter close. That is the least likely time a new decision is going to get made. General, general, general concepts here. Doesn't apply to everyone. Doesn't apply to every market, but that's, you know, a, a, another lesson in this process um, is, is a quarter can change a lot. So, um, you know, after we got we, we got Tito um, involved in consulting, the last thing I'd say that, you know, might be interesting for the audience is we basically it, it wasn't the same um, scope. I already had trust. I already knew he could deliver. Now I was asked to build out a repeatable outbound team for a division that had zero dollars of outbound the last three years in a row. So this division of consulting, billion dollars in revenue, zero outbound 2018, zero outbound 2019, zero outbound 2020. That was what that was what the CRO and I walked into having left the software division. And it's an awesome challenge, right? Awesome challenge. Go from zero to something once again. And, and I knew Tito was up for the task if I could just get him in there. So rather than listen and build an internal team. I built a small internal team and I ran Tito as the out, outsource team. So we ran, we, ran an in, we ran an internal BDR team and an outsource BDR team at the same time. Sales Loft and Zoom Info versus Tito and Outreach and 11 data providers. And one of the things he told me at the end of this was, he goes, I knew you guys didn't have a chance. And I was like, how? I was like, that sounds cocky, man. You know, people don't, you know, it's like, you gotta, gotta be careful saying stuff like that. He's like, I knew you didn't have a chance. He said, because I have Zoom Info too. So I knew exactly which counts you could get into. I just ran the report. I bought all the data. Then I looked at all the other 10 data tools that I had. Here's all the accounts that I'm going to get into that you don't even know exist. They're not open to you. They're totally closed off because you don't have their number. You don't have their email. How in the world are you going to get their attention with your, your internal BDR team when you only have Zoom Info? And sure enough, after about a month, uh, my, one of the more talented um, young, young women on my team calls me and says, hey, I'm out of accounts. 
right? She set, she set like six meetings, got off to a hot start. Now we're talking executive director and senior people at 10,000, you know, person and up companies. There's only, there's only 918 companies that fit the definition that we could sell to in that division. That's it. Can't, you can't make up a new company. There's 918 big enough that have the problems we think we could solve. So fast forward to the end, Tito, Tito's efforts, plus a little bit of the internal team, um, built 300 million in pipeline that led to 42 million in close one by the time I left could have been more since then. I think Tito still has a relationship today. So 300 million in pipeline, 42 million close one Tito's team was twice as expensive, but three times more productive on a meetings measured basis. If my team got the meeting, it had a slightly higher propensity to move forward than Tito, than if Tito sourced the meeting as an external provider. But when you net the math all the way out, his math, his math beat the internal team, even at the price point that, you know, he wanted to command, which is definitely a market premium. He did not shy away from that one, one bit. Um, but that's how the story played out, right? So that's how you get the 300 million in pipe is his team is, is, is just wildly more productive with outreach and all the data providers and the ability to get into accounts that quite frankly, we, we were just not set up to do with our internal methodology. So, you know, not everyone has this luxury, but if you're out there listening and you know, you've never done this, I I told a, I told a a CRO at a conference, I asked him, I said, how many BERs do you have? And he said, 32. And I said, okay, wow. So that's probably about what, do you think of them like a hundred grand per? And he's like, yeah, I think of them like 85. I was like, okay, so you got like two and a half million dollar SDR team. I said, how many of those uh, work for you? And he goes, 32. I said, wow. So after a year, you're going to spend two and a half million dollars and know what you already know right now, whatever they know, whatever you're, te- whatever you're telling them. I said, you have no external test to see if that model that you're building in-house is the best model for your business because you haven't tried anyone else. And he's like, man, he goes, I never thought of it that way. I said, yeah, take five SDRs, take that budget, give it to a vendor, let them compete. Do that every year. Every year, have another team trying to take away, trying to beat you at your own game. And I'm like, look, you know, I learned, I learned so many things from working with Tito. He can't really hide them from me. And I'm not really trying to steal his methodology, but you get better like that working with each other. You know, he, he learned some things about Chorus and took some things out of working with us into his model. I take some things into my career. Win, win. We're still friends today, you know, um, uh, but, you know, stress test your, your internal team. Um, you don't have to outsource the whole thing. You know, if you're small, you might outsource the whole thing because you don't have the management capacity. But if you're big, don't have the ego to say, we know our market and our stuff. Bring someone from the outside and see if they can beat you. And if they do, be glad you did it and incorporate the learnings. Um, that, that's that's kind of like my, my core takeaway from this whole thing is he beat us. Great. Now we're all better off as a result. We all learned something. And, and I've been able to take some of those learnings into really tiny companies and make a meaningful impact by just buying three data sources, just buying three data sources, just doing that one simple thing. And all of a sudden you can reach out to so many more accounts. That's a great summary. Tito, any, any closing words? I don't think I have anything else to say. I mean, he was doing all the selling for me at this point. Um, so just... Keep, keep your customers happy and uh, do good work and, and know your value. And that's it. That's a, that's a great way to wrap it up. And, and, and Ewing, I love the, 
the competition and the gamification. These are things that I had never thought about before. And you're, you're putting them front and center of ways to reduce risk is to, to set up competitions, to gamify it and to make everyone better. Yep. And you got to look and, and when you work with your vendors, don't put them through the ringer just because somebody else decided that's the way you do business. Make it easy for them to show their value. Not hard. Don't make it hard. Make it easy. Because if they create value, that's attached to your personal brand too. So, you know, flip the script on the whole procurement thing when you, when, 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 and if you have the, the opportunity to do so, um, you know, you, you want your vendors to succeed. You don't want to, you know, your goal is not to trick them into uh, showing them that you know more than them. Your goal is to actually make them succeed. So you want to have that mindset and, you know, make the road easy to demonstrate what they do uniquely rather than try to f- fold them into your model of how the world works and how business is done and all these exercises and checklists and things. And just, just try to set that aside until the value creation is established. So that's great. Last question, Ewing, because you just keep giving us these, these gems and these insights from what it's actually like working and being a buyer for a global enterprise. Did you pick up this win-win and, and, and partner with your vendors? Did you pick it up when you were working in procurement as a recent MBA? Or did you pick it up after you worked from procure, in the procurement department? Uh, a guy named Thad Ewald, I think his name was, was head of strategy at Cummins. And Cummins was an extremely principled company, blue collar manufacturing, Midwest roots, um, four CEOs in like a hundred years. I mean, like just a really, really well run organization, very values principled. And, and they said, treat suppliers like their employees. And, uh, and that's a mandate. It's not a goal. It's not a wish. It's a mandate, right? The other thing that the head of strategy said was, Procurement is a window into how business is done. It is a, it is a uh, luxury to get to work in procurement because you see how business is actually conducted because you see deal-making happen front and center, right in front of your eyes. Proposals, counters, you know, losses, wins, decks, presentations. We used to sit in a room and watch 20 people come in and present uh, back to back to back. You know what kind of education you get when you see the difference between people that wear a full suit or just a suit jacket and different different pants? The first slide on every deck is about them or is about us. You know, they have 20 slides for 20 minutes or five slides for 50 minutes. Like they're on a whiteboard or they're not. And you see it back to back to back to back to back to back to back stacked up. God, you learn so much. So I learned it in those days um, is to you know, get a supplier a win and you get a win as a result in general. That's a common philosophy. That's, that's a great wrap up and that's a great learning. So I, I just wrote down Thad's name. If we could chase him down for an episode, that'd be a big win, Ewing. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tito, for doing what you do. And, and this has been a lot of fun. Same here, my man. Talk soon. Good to see you, Tito. See you guys. I'm Andrew Capel. Thank you for tuning in to How the Deal Was Done podcast. Don't miss out on more inspiring stories from top sellers. Subscribe now to stay updated and motivated on your journey in sales.